Well, amen. Welcome to Jacksonville Prez again. If you would, grab your Bibles, uh, open up to 1 Corinthians. I said that right, not to Numbers. <laughs> open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're just joining us, uh, we're going through a series right now called Whole Through the Old Testament. And while you're flipping to 1 Corinthians, I need to dismiss the kids out this side door over here with Miss Joy. You guys will be back in just a little bit in time for communion. Now, for everybody else in the room, if you would, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, we are going through the Old Testament, but today we're going to use 1 Corinthians 10 as sort of a, a pair of glasses through which we're going to see the book of Numbers. So with that, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then uh, keep your Bibles open this whole time, and maybe get your finger in the book of Numbers, which is real early on in the Old Testament. So uh, we're going to be flipping between 1 Corinthians and Numbers a lot this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. Uh, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? Keep that Bible open in front of you. And if you have one, keep your finger, or maybe if you have a ribbon in your Bible, at 1 Corinthians 10, and then also to the book of Numbers, which is very, very early on in the Bible. It's the, only the third book. You can find it pretty quickly. Uh, but friends, with that in mind, let's pray. Uh, Father, as we dive into your word, uh, Father, we pray that we would be taught by your very own Holy Spirit, uh, who we know is here among us. Lord, we come with ears open, with our hearts open, and with our hands open to receive what you would have to teach us. And Lord, we pray that we would be like sponges, soaking up everything that your word has to say. Lord, spark within us a fire for your spirit and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's just get it out there. Why is the book of Numbers in the Bible? Has anyone asked yourself that? You know, last week we uh, talked about the book of Leviticus, and I suggested to you that Leviticus is sort of where your Bible reading plan goes to die. And I was uh, praying with Doug Hansen this morning. He said, yeah, you know, if, you, if anyone makes it through Leviticus, by the time you get to the book of Numbers, then you're really dead, and so is your Bible reading plan, right? Uh, but I, I want to suggest to you actually, that the book of Numbers is utterly fascinating. And if you've never read it, you are really, really missing out. And that's not just sort of like preacher hyperbole. I'm not just overstating it, okay? So uh, what I want you to grab, the first thing you need to know when we get to the book of Numbers is the book of Numbers 
is not the original name for the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers comes from sort of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, arithmoi, where we get sort of arithmetic, right? And so you get arithmoi in Greek, which we call Numbers, but when the Bible was being originally written in Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew language, they didn't call it Numbers because I think they wanted people to read it. So they didn't call it Numbers. And I'm on this like personal campaign to go back to the original Hebrew names for the books of the Bible. Remember, Leviticus is called, and he called, right? Meaning, and God calls from his tabernacle where his glory is, right? It's not Leviticus, right? It's this holy God is calling out of his holy, fiery presence in a tabernacle. Well, does anyone know what the original name for the book of Numbers is? In Hebrew, it's pronounced like this, Ba Midbar, which means in the wilderness. Okay, would you rather read a book called Numbers or read a book called In the Wilderness? In the Wilderness is utterly more interesting and a better description of what the book of Numbers is actually about. You see, the book of Numbers begins with the people at Mount Sinai. Remember where they get the Ten Commandments and they get the Levitical Code? Well, they stay at Mount Sinai for a full year, and that's pretty much what Numbers 1 through 10 is. And this is where we get tripped up because the first couple of chapters goes through a census of the army, of how many men on foot they have that can fight their battles. And so you get through a couple of chapters of just names and clans, and we, we think that's all the book has to offer. But really, even the census is fascinating because it's not just, well, who lives where? It's how many men of fighting power do we have? Because we got to go take the promised land. And by the way, there are giants in there, right? That's what Numbers 13 says, right? Remember when I said in the wilderness is way more interesting than you think? <laughs> it's much more of a strange, fascinating book than we often give it credit for. But after the first sort of 10 chapters, the people start marching towards the promised land, very much like an army, right? And, and it's all symbolic. The way that they assemble the tabernacle is in the very center of the camp, and then the ark leads the people to the promised land. But as soon as they leave sort of the base of Mount Sinai, everything that could go wrong goes wrong. And it's like, it's almost depressing when you read it. Well, it is depressing. It's almost humorously depressing because it's like every single time the people do something, they're doing the wrong thing. So if you look at, you know, Numbers 11, as soon as they set out, as soon as they begin the journey, they begin complaining and then when they find, and then Moses and Aaron uh, begin to complain, or excuse me, uh, Miriam and Aaron begin to complain about Moses in chapter 12. And then they send this 12 spies to go check out the promised land, right? And God says, I will deliver all this people over to you. They are wicked. I gave them 400 years to repent. They didn't do it. So I'm going to use you to remove them from the land and don't be afraid of them. Well, the spies in chapter 13, they go and they spy out the land. And what do they see? The descendants of the Nephilim, they're giants. And so what do they say? They say, we don't want to go fight. We are going to lose. And they, in verse chapter 14, they go and they say, well, we should have just died in Egypt. It would have been better for us just to die in the wilderness. And so God, because he's just, says, fine, you can die in the wilderness. Don't worry. You don't want to go to the promised land. I won't make you go there. If you want to die in the wilderness, I'll let you die in the wilderness. But... Because God is also gracious and loving and forgiving, he says, but I'm going to make sure your kids get to the promised land, and I'm going to uphold my covenant with Abraham to make sure that your, you guys bless the entire world. 
right? You see sort of the justice, but also the grace of God. Well, that theme sort of carries its way through the book of Numbers. In Numbers 16, we're introduced to a guy named Korah who gets mad that Moses is a spiritual leader. And he says, well, isn't God with all of us? Who appointed you better? God's with me just as much as he's with you. And then God takes care of him. You can read about it. It's pretty interesting. Uh, In chapter 20, the people are grumbling and grumbling and grumbling all the time. And then guess what? In Numbers 20, they need water. And this time God tells Moses, he says, go and ask the rock for some water. He doesn't say strike it like we talked about two weeks ago. He says, ask for it this time. I already demonstrated that I'm willing to take the punishment. But now, this time, I want you to just ask the, the, the rock for water. And what does Moses do? Moses grumbles and he gets mad and he takes his staff and he whacks the rock twice. And because of that, because God is holy and because Moses did not regard God as holy before the people, God tells Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land. Don't worry, the people will, but you won't. And so God takes him to Canaan's fair shores and lets him look over the promised land, but Moses doesn't enter it. See that there's the justice and the mercy, right? Moses' ultimate goal isn't to get there personally. His ultimate goal is to get the people there, right? And then, of course, you know, um, if that's not bad enough, uh, in Numbers 21, the people complain some more, and they put God to the test, which means that they say, like, how much obedience do I really have to give this God? And so God sends fiery serpents. And then something really weird happens because the way that they're healed from the fiery serpents is Moses has to make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick and lift it up. And the way they're healed from their snake bites is anybody who's willing to humble themselves and admit that they were wrong, as long as they just look at the bronze serpent like that, like that, they're healed immediately. Pretty weird story, right? Don't even get me started on Balaam and his donkey. And then there's some, you know, sort of plucky young women, the daughters of Zelophehad. They're pretty cool. It turns out that uh, men and women inherit the land so that it stays in the clans. And that's pretty much it for the book of Numbers. So all that to say, you know, if you keep your finger in the book of Numbers, flip back with me at 1 Corinthians 10. (laughs) Like, why is Numbers in the Bible, (laughs) right? Um, That was a nice overview, but how are we supposed to understand this book? Well, as you know, I'm praying through each old, or I'm, I'm preaching through each Old Testament book, which means I'm also praying through these books and reading them, and wondering how am I going to sort of encapsulate this entire book in one sermon? And what I want you to realize about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you go into the New Testament, is actually Paul summarizes the book of Numbers for us. And so when I was trying to figure out how am I going to summarize the book of Numbers, I realized 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul already does that for me. And hopefully what we're doing in this series is we're seeing how the whole Bible fits together and how it's this whole big story of God's steadfast love and how the New Testament can't be divorced from the Old Testament. They, they fit together, right? So if you're going to understand 1 Corinthians 10, you've got to understand the book of Numbers, And as Christians, to understand the book of Numbers, you've got to understand 1 Corinthians 10, right? We see the New Testament, and it helps us understand the old. And when we better understand the old, that helps us understand the new, right? Does that make sense? So what is it that Paul then wants us to glean from this sort of odd collection of all these weird, random stories in the book of Numbers? Excuse me, what's the name of the book? In the what? 
in the wilderness. Well, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse, you know, uh, let's just start uh, in verse, I don't know, let's just read verse 1. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, right? Remember, Moses led them through the Red Sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. What's the spiritual food that people ate in the wilderness? The manna. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ, right? There's the water coming from the rock, and it's Christ. And look at verse 5. Nevertheless, even though they were taking communion, so to speak, nevertheless, even though they were religious people, nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown where? Bamidbar in the wilderness. Paul's naming the book of Numbers by name right there in verse 5. And when he says they were overthrown in the wilderness, immediately Paul's mind goes through a recap of what happened and what are we supposed to learn from the book of Numbers. He gives us four things to avoid. And then he gives us sort of four gospel antidotes. So I want to walk through those four things with you, and then we're going to look at where they show up in the book of Numbers, and then how does the gospel empower us to live a different way, right? Pretty basic outline. So what are the four things that Paul mentions? Well, number one, he tells us not to desire evil. Uh, he uses a, another term for it. He calls, he calls it idolatry. So Paul says, don't desire evil. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say don't commit evil. He says don't desire evil. It's a bit harder to accomplish, don't you think? Number two, he says to avoid sexual immorality. Aren't you glad we don't have to worry about sexual sins today and we've gotten over that? <laughs> Hardly. It was a problem for the people in the wilderness. It was a problem for the people that Paul was writing to in Corinthians, and it's a problem for our culture today. And then he says, don't put Christ to the test. Don't put God to the test. What does that mean? And then he finally tells them not to grumble. And so all, of the, all four of those things sort of show up in the book of Numbers, and so I'm going to walk those through with you. I don't know if this is making any sense. Like I said, I don't really know what I'm doing in this series, but this is my best, this is my best shot, okay? So if you're worried, we're not going through a series in Numbers right now, but I can guarantee you it'd be the most interesting sermon series you ever sat through, right? Because you'd be like, what is going on, right? So let's look at uh, what Paul says right there in verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, Right? So Paul is saying the book of Numbers exists for you and me, Christian, to learn something from their example. And unfortunately, the people's example is usually negative, right? It's a warning to us. And what is that first thing? He says that we might not desire evil as they did, nor be idolaters, right? So what I want you to sort of step back and reflect is, well, how do I stop desiring evil, Right? Um, you know, that's like asking, how can I, you know, um, stand in the face of temptation, right? I mean, if I could stand to temptation, then it wouldn't be a temptation, right? How can I not desire evil when I know that I still struggle with the sin nature? I mean, if you have faith in Christ, you know that you are a new creation and God's Holy Spirit dwells within you, but you also know there's this struggle where there's this pull to the old man. Um, even though you're, you're in the wilderness, there's still the pool, the, 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 the tug on your heart to get back to Egypt, right? And it's, it's from deep within us, right? We still, we still pine for Egypt sometimes. We pine for our old life, the life of sin where God didn't hold us accountable, 
right? So how do we, how do, we, how do, we do this? Well, um, you know, the easiest way to understand how we stop desiring evil, I think, if I wanted to, to teach you how to do that, uh, I think I would go to the book of Numbers, Numbers 11. So flip with me to the book of Numbers 11. Remember, keep that ribbon into the book of 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to flip through Numbers. And like I said, this may not work, but I think it's going to work. Have you watched those baking shows where they're like, bake like Buckingham Palace using only like, you know, sugar. And they're like, I don't know if I'm going to do that. And then they make it, and then it comes out, and it's beautiful. That's what's happening this morning. I'm baking something as I go. So how do you change your desires? Well, let's find out. So what is it that the people in uh, the book of Numbers are desiring that's evil? Well, look at verse 11.4 in the book of Numbers. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You know, don't you, I love that they said none of the food cost anything. And it's like, it didn't cost anything because you were slaves and you didn't get a salary. That's why you couldn't go shopping at Trader Joe's, right? It's because you literally didn't have any income. But they are pining, right, for this sort of old life. But notice, what are they comparing, right? They're comparing the supposed food that they had while they were slaves in Egypt. And, um, I mean, <laughs> you have to wonder, were the Egyptians really making this, like, wonderful organic food, you know, that was, like, all, like, whole, you know, whole 30 for them? Like, were they really giving them cucumbers and leeks and meat and onions and garlic all the time? You know, they, oh, the garlic makes it taste better, slaves. Here you go. You think that was really what life was like in Egypt? It feels a little like they're, they're overstating how nice it was back in Egypt, right? But that's part, of that sin, uh, that's part of that sin's deception of us. You know, when we come to Christ and we repent, our old ways of life always seem more enticing than they really were, right? We have nostalgia, right? We have nostalgia for the old ways of life for Egypt. You know, nostalgia is that thing that fills in all the bumps, you know, on, the, on memory lane, right? It makes us smooth it all over. So what are they comparing it to? Well, they say, you know, well, that stuff was all tasty. You know, it's awful, this manna stuff. <laughs> but look what uh, Numbers says in verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like that of bedellium. And the people went out and gathered it and ground it into handmills or beat it into the mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. <laughs> I mean, doesn't sound too bad to me, does it? Does it sound all that bad to you? But notice that what they're desiring, right, is tied into sort of this idea of they have an appetite. And they're in the wilderness now. They've been pulled out of this old lifestyle in Egypt. And God says, I'm putting you on a new diet plan. Anyone here ever been put on a new diet plan? And then you look at Cheez-Its and you're like, Lord have mercy. Nothing has ever been made as delicious as a box of Cheez-Its right? You look back on all this unhealthy food, and it's a bunch of garbage, and you know it is. But what does the diet do? It's trying to train you to have a new kind of appetite. So what God is doing is he's giving them an opportunity to stop desiring Egypt and all of its, all of its lies and its deceptions, all of its old ways of doing things. 
and God puts them on a new plan. And he gives them the opportunity to start a new appetite and a new diet. So how do you, how do you change what you desire? I mean, if they desire Egypt, how do you change? That's just how I feel. I can't change that. That's what makes it my feeling, right? Well, how do you change what you're hungry for? How do you desire manna and not all of this other stuff? Well, I guess what I would suggest to you is, um, I think this is true. And I think if you reflect on it, I think you'll find this is true for yourself. And it's this very simple principle that your diet, the stuff that you consume, actually shapes your appetite. Did you catch that? What you consume actually determines what you want to consume more of, right? This is why, like, when you, on Halloween, you know, when you, like, break your rule about not eating junk food and candy, and then you eat a bunch of Halloween candy, what happens for, like, the next month? You're like, hmm, Reese's Pieces are pretty good. I should get one when I'm standing in line. Because what you consume actually creates more and more of the desire for it, Right? That's, that's like the, the breakthrough that anyone on a diet has to realize, is that the more you eat Cheez-Its, the more you kind of want Cheez-Its. The more you eat the Egyptian food, the more you think about it, the more you're going to want it, because what you actually consume determines what you, could, you want to consume more of, right? So how do you change what your appetite is for? Well, you have to start eating something different. You have to train yourself to eat something healthy for you. So for the Israelites in the wilderness, how were they supposed to stop desiring the food of Egypt and everything that it represented? You know, God says, don't desire this. What does God provide? He provides manna. It's like the taste of cakes. It tastes good. And they have a choice in the wilderness to change their diet. And when they start changing their diet, they want something different eventually. That's the option. So what are we supposed to learn from them? Well, what are you consuming? I mean, um, think about the stuff you've watched on Netflix in the last few weeks or the, the cable TV shows that you've watched or the movies that you've seen or the songs you're listening to, the conversations you have. Isn't it funny how um, binging has become like, an, like a, uh, just an understood experience when you watch media? It's like you can't just watch one YouTube video. You have to watch like 37 right? And by the end of it, you're watching someone pet a kitty cat in Japan, and you're like, why am I doing this? I, I don't care. I'm doing it. I'm doing it because what I consume determines what I want more of, right? So what needs to happen, I need to snap out of it. I need to do something different because what I consume determines what I want more of. So what does God provide? He provides manna in the wilderness, and if you would actually eat it and practice it, you may actually find you have a stomach for it and a hunger for it. All right, let's keep going. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. The way you change what you desire, whether it's evil or good, is you change what you consume, right? Next thing I want you to see is uh, their sin. This is verse 10, 10. Look, they, they do, we're supposed to learn from this story not to grumble, right? And so what is that? Is that like, oh, man, this stinks? Is that what grumbling means in the Bible? Well, uh, go to Numbers 14. This is the passage that Paul's referring to. So remember when I said in the book of Numbers 
the people are supposed to go take over the promised land and God is with them and they've assembled like an army and they're marching towards the promised land and they send out some spies in Numbers 13. They, they spy out the promised land. Do you remember this story if you grew up in the church? They send out 12 spies. Joshua and Caleb are sort of like two really good spies and then there's 10 other guys, but they basically represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they go, they spy out the land and what do they see? They see a bunch of strong-looking people and a beautiful land, and then they see a few giants. <laughs> and they get really freaked out, right? And if that doesn't make any sense to you, join me on Wednesday night in my Bible study, and we'll talk all about that weird stuff, okay? So <laughs> um, you can explore your strange Bible, you know, as Tim Mackey likes to say, uh, with people in your church on Wednesday night. We'll talk more about what they're seeing and how do we square that away with the Bible. But basically, they report back that they don't want to go to the promised land, and they're too scared because God can't protect them, right? And so what happens? Look at Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And, oh man, talk about dramatic, y'all, right? And all the people of Israel grumbled, there's that word, against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness, right? There's the name of the book. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Hmm. There's that desire again, right? Because what you consume shapes what you want. What do they really want when push comes to shove to go back to their old way of life? And look at verse four. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back. To Egypt. Uh, verse 11, God says, Moses, why does this people continue to despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? You see, grumbling, um, to sort of summarize what, what this core sin is, I think the easiest way to understand this, this warning passage is when God calls us to do something scary, or he calls us to do something that's going to make us not fit in to society. <laughs> We're going to have to tussle, right, with some people, so to speak. We're going to have to live as sojourners in the wilderness as we seek the land that is to come. There's a tendency to distrust God, right, and to say that I don't really think you have my best interests in mind. And I think when, you know, when you're, when you're given the opportunity to either obey the Lord or to go down your own path and do what you want to do, I would say that, you know, when you have those moments when you're trying to choose, am I going to do what the Lord wants me to do, this sort of Christ-focused, God-honoring, self-sacrificing work of love, or am I going to just sort of take things by my own strength and do them because, you know, sometimes you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet and I'll just get by in my life. You know, when you're faced with those kind of decisions, I'd encourage you to maybe step back and say, do you really believe that God has your best interests in mind? That God is for you. Not like for you, but for you as a person. And if he is, if you believe God is for you, you have to have some like modicum of faith <laughs> that if you obey him, he's going to bless you. And obeying Jesus is better than ever breaking God's law and doing what's wrong. Right? This is what Jesus is constantly telling the disciples. Oh, ye of little faith. Just give me a little faith. Just trust that I have your best interests at mind. Trust that if you obey my word, you believe me, 
you, you proclaim the gospel to the nations, you are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, if you are a peacemaker, if you are pure in heart, if you follow the teachings of Jesus, you will be okay. You will survive in the wilderness, right? I mean, that's what God is talking to Moses about. He says, why, do they dis- why don't they just trust me? How much more do I have to do? Trust and I have your best interests at mind. Don't grumble against the Lord. And it's so beautiful because we can't go through it, but in Numbers 14, Moses intercedes on the behalf of the people. And he says, oh, holy God, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're saying. You know what God says? God says, I will forgive them. But I'm also going to give them the desires of their heart. You guys want to die in the wilderness? You're going to die in the wilderness. And as for your kids who you think are going to die here too, don't ever worry about your kids. I'm going to take care of your kids. They're going to get to the promised land, but you aren't. So flip over to 1 Corinthians 10 again. So Paul says we're supposed to learn how to not desire evil, right? Consume something different. Paul says we're not supposed to grumble, which means we're supposed to just trust with some modicum of faith that God has our best interests in mind. But Paul's not done. Look at verse 8. He says another lesson we're supposed to learn is we're not supposed to indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Uh, this is probably a sermon for another time, uh, but uh, where Paul is pulling this from is from Numbers 25. You can read that story, uh, but the people uh, start to have, have you know, sexual relations with the people in this community, and that leads them to worshiping other gods. And it's fascinating to me how when the Israelites' beliefs about sexuality change, so does their worship. So does their relationship with the Lord. And you can read 1 Corinthians, you know, uh, sexual immorality of all kinds is a huge problem uh, for the church in Corinth. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 5, or chapter 7. Uh, you know, it's a, it was a problem in the book of Numbers, and it was an especially big problem for the people in Corinth. And it's still a problem for us today. And I think, you know, the only thing I want to say about that, you know, is this is a sermon for another time, but this goes back to, do you trust that God has your best interests in mind? And that if you follow his word, you will be blessed. That the end goal of life is not to be sexually fulfilled. The end goal of life is to glorify God. Jesus was single. There's nothing wrong with a single life. There's nothing wrong with a celibate life. Paul was celibate. It's a beautiful life. There is not a lack if you are single. If that was the case, Jesus was lacking something that he must have needed. But he wasn't. Like I said, maybe a sermon for a different time. Let's keep going. Last thing that I want you to notice that Paul says. So there's this warning about uh, desiring evil. There's this warning about grumbling and not trusting the Lord. Uh, There's a warning not to uh, commit sexual immorality or to distrust God's teaching on sexuality. But the last, you know, sort of concern that Paul has, the last sort of lesson we're supposed to learn, right, is in verse 8. Excuse me, no, it's not verse 8, it's verse 9. You see that? Look at verse 9. Paul says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. (laughs) What in the world? Where is he getting this? When were people destroyed by serpents? Well, if you go to Numbers 21, uh, Paul is recounting that story when the people grumbled and they put God to the test. And so God rightly punishes them with serpents. Now, what does it mean then to put God to the test? Do you put God to the test? Well, um, 
I guess when, I, when, when, when the Bible talks about putting God to the test, what that means is, are you trying to just provoke God to punish you? And maybe that doesn't make, it, make a whole lot of sense, but maybe think about it this way. Like if you, um, let's say you're a basketball coach, okay? You're a basketball coach, and I want to be on your basketball team. And I come to you and I say, all right, what's, the, uh, what's like the bare minimum number of practices I have to come to to still be on the team? What's the bare minimum? And you're like, what? You should try to make it. I'm like, well, can you give me like a number? Can I skip like half of them? You know, can I, can I skip a, a fourth of them? And then what if every day at practice I was like, okay, I know you want us to run like sprints, but like how many do I really have to run? You know, how many water breaks can I take? Would any self-respecting basketball coach ever accept a player like that on his team? Would he? No, of course not. So why would a holy God want people and tell people to follow him and then constantly have them put him to the test and say, well, what's the bare minimum obedience? What's like the bare minimum that I have to believe about this Bible stuff and still get into heaven? What's the bare minimum of obedience that I have to believe or do to get into heaven? What's the bare minimum? Can we sort of, what about all this weird sexual rule stuff? Can we throw that out? What about, I'm, I'm cool with, you know, a few of the commandments, maybe not all of them. You know, I, I, you know can, I, can I worship you and just also keep this idol on the side in my life? If your basketball coach wouldn't accept a conversation like that, how much more a holy God? And so what the people are doing is they're constantly grumbling, they're worshiping other gods, they're committing sins everywhere, and they're basically just provoking God to his face, right? And they're saying, well, how much, you know, let's see how much you put up with God before punishment happens. So how does God respond to that kind of attitude in the book of Numbers? You know, yeah, he could punish them for doing what, something wrong, but that's not actually what God does. You know, you remember uh, last week I said that uh, I used an object lesson. Remember this? I said last week that understanding God is understanding a totally righteous God who punishes sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, but also understanding that God is totally 100% gracious and forgiving and loving and merciful, right, who will pass the blessing down of the righteous to the 10,000th generation, right? And it's like when we see these two things together, you know, I got better at it this week. You know, only when you see his righteousness and his mercy does sort of the spark of faith really take over in your life, right? Don't you love the idea that the, the Holy Spirit's often depicted as a fire, you know, and that our bodies are supposed to be sacrifices on a burnt offering, you know, seeing God in his righteousness and his mercy, right? <laughs> now I have to commit till I do it again. There we are. Yeah. It's gimmicky. It's gimmicky. Just go with me. Right, so when, we're, when they put them to the test, what happens with this serpent? Well, you know, if you know from the book of John, right, Jesus talks about this serpent in the wilderness, right? And this is sort of like the breakthrough in the book of Numbers uh, because what happens is even though the people are sinning and God is righteous, his ultimate desire is to forgive and love and give them an opportunity to repent because the God who keeps his covenant promises is also the God of second chances, and that is the same theme through the book of Numbers. God is constantly giving them another chance, another chance to repent. Will they repent? And the, the solution in Numbers to the serpents, right, is so beautiful because it points so beautifully to Christ. You know, uh, Moses is to take that symbol of sin, the serpent. Think about the garden in Eden, right? And this thing that's biting them, the symbol of sin. 
And he's supposed to take this symbol of sin and put it on a, a stick and then lift it high on a hill so that anyone who was sick could look at it. And they didn't have to sacrifice to the priests. They didn't have to confess any sins. They didn't have to do a ritual. All they had to do to be saved was look and live. Humble yourself to the point, Israelite, that you were wrong to grumble against the Lord, to constantly test him, ask him what the bare minimum is, and instead humble yourself and look. Look at this weird symbol, this symbol of death, and you're going to live by it. And you know, when Jesus is talking about the book of Numbers, he mentions it in some of the most famous verses in the Bible. You know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Well, right before that, Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted high above the earth so that all who look at him will live. You see, even the book of Numbers is really all about Jesus and a God who is going to fulfill his promises and show grace. So let me just sort of finish up with this then. You know, like, why is the book of Numbers in the Bible, right? <laughs> why is it here? Why are all these weird, strange stories? Well, I think Paul gives us the answer. And let's see, let's see if you can catch the answer. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Now these things in the wilderness happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Uh, friends, that's the invitation to trust Jesus in the wilderness of your life. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we mostly thank you that your word points us to Jesus Christ, who is lifted on a hill that we would look and believe. Uh, Father, would we take these warnings to heart? Lord, would these uh, instructions uh, not lead us to self-righteousness or thinking that we can save ourselves, but teach us what it means to live as free people. Uh, Father, we are sojourners in this life and we are exiles in this wilderness, but we seek the city that is to come. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.